Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. If you have a Bible this morning, I'm going to invite you to the book of John, chapter 12. We're working our way through uh, the book of John. We've got kind of the end in sight here as we, um, you know, kind of close out the spring semester. That's, that's when we'll be wrapping up this study. So it's been great. Uh, John, chapter 12, John writes so that um, we will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, we would have a life that we can't have any other way. We would have life uh, in his name. If you need a, a Bible that you can put in your lap, there's some on the sides of the tech booth. If you're a user of the Bible app, please open up that app and you can find the live event and track along with all that stuff. Uh, anybody ever get any weird emails? Of course you do. You're a human in the 21st century. Um, this happened several weeks ago now, and I've just been kind of holding on to this because I wanted to tell this story at some point. Today's that day. Um, I got an email, and it was an email that said, uh, hey, uh, I've been trying to reach out to you. I really need to hear from you. We need to get this deal closed. And I'm like, huh, that, that's odd. Except there was just, a, do you get those that you're like, oh, that's completely spam. And then you get those where you're like, uh-oh, this may have some legs to it. And this was one of those. I'm like, Ooh, I don't know. So the very first thing that I do, I don't know about you. The very first thing that I do, I click on the address, right, to try to understand. Is the reply to 12749AB343 at somewhere.com, you know? And I'm just like, no, it's not. It is a person's name at clarklegal.com. And I'm like, Clark Legal. So Clark Legal. Um, it is a legal institution, uh, a, a lawyer's office, attorney's office in Alberta, Canada. To which I thought, uh-oh. So, I, uh, th- there's a pretty good thread. So I, I start scrolling down to figure out what's going on. And I think to myself, this is getting more and more exciting all the while. Because apparently, I'm on tap to buy a condo in Alberta for $261,000 in cash. <laughs> this is the deal. And they've got my name and my email address. And I had this thought, well, I mean, who doesn't want a timeshare? I bet the church would take up a collection. We could all share it. We'll just work out the scheduling thing, have a sign-up sheet or something. We could go to Alberta and you've got like a built-in condo in Alberta. Who wouldn't be for that, right? Yeah, okay, but it didn't go that way. So as I'm scrolling down and I'm looking, I'm like, this is the weirdest thing ever. It is definitely my name. And she definitely sent it to my email address. I'm so old, though, that my email address is just my name, Trent Henderson at the uh, domain.com. Like, I've, I've had it forever, ever. Um, this was Trent. The, the original email, original single email, was sent to Trent W. Henderson at this address.com. And I thought to myself, hmm, I could either be really snarky and sarcastic and particularly unhelpful which is in me. I need you to know it's in me. (laughs) Or the nice lady, Amy at Clark Legal, I can just fire back an email. And so I did. I said, dear Amy, uh, it is so good to hear from you. (laughs) While I'm sure real estate in Alberta, Canada is awesome and would be a tremendous investment. Number one, I don't have $261,000 in cash just hanging around. Number two, you probably want to send this to Trent W. Henderson at this domain because uh, he would actually be interested in what you're saying, not me. I just think it's great. I'm in Houston. Have a great day. I hope Alberta's awesome. She wrote back and says, 
my apologies. I have, I am removing you from my distribution list. I'm like, now we're getting somewhere, right? (laughs) Amy had no idea what she was signing up for when she sent the email to the wrong address. She had no idea about the potential of what she was signing up for because I'm telling you, it was in me to just take the thing over. I'm glad I didn't. I didn't know that when I opened the email that day that I was going to get a a condo in Alberta for 261 grand cash. Sometimes we encounter things. We have no idea what all is going to be involved. Sometimes we have moments or we have um, uh, situations or circumstances and we have no idea all that will be involved. This is today. This is where we are. There are people who show up seeking Jesus. We're going to read about it in just a second. And they have no idea what they are in for. Some of you showed up today. Guess what? You may not have any idea what you're in for. Jesus is going to bring these things into focus. And I want to give you a couple of words to ponder. We'll work our way through this text. But the first one is the word seeking. And you'll see this right here in John chapter 12, verse 20. Remember, he is ridden into Jerusalem on the donkey. They have proclaimed and said, he is the, the king of Israel. And here we are in John chapter 12, verse 20. Now, uh, among those who went up uh, to worship at the feast were some Greeks. That particular word is pretty important, so just hang on to this for just a second. Um, It's actually meaning Greeks, not like somebody from a different place, but like people uh, from Greece, okay? Uh, So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and then Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I want to pause right there and just talk around this theme of seeking. And the way that I want to start here is just by noting here um, that these folks um, who were Gentiles, who were um, not part of the people of God, not connected um, to the uh, covenant people there, they had come to Jerusalem to worship at the feast. They had come seeking Jesus. Now they, they did so because they knew, uh, maybe they knew the story of Lazarus and him being raised from the dead. Remember this is last week. They wanted to kill him and uh, kill Lazarus along with Jesus. And they had all this stuff that goes, maybe that the miracle was part of the draw there. Maybe it was because when Jesus came into town, riding on the donkey, uh, the people just went nuts. The whole place just lit up and went ballistic and oh blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord behold he is the king of israel maybe they're just like well this guy i don't know what's happening but i know this is important and this guy seems important maybe we need to have an interview maybe we need to have a conversation i wonder if i could get a cup of coffee i don't know how it all went down but i do know this that they sought jesus because they were sought by jesus first seeking begins with being sought. There had been something that sparked in their heart. There had been something that caught their eye. There had been something that had gotten into their ear and kind of wormed its way um, into their ear such that it was in their mind, gosh, something is real here. Something is important here. They were seeking because they were sought. This is the story of Jesus and what he has done. He says at the end of the story about uh, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus um, climbed up in a tree because he wanted to do what? To see Jesus. And Jesus stopped. I'm going to your house. Zacchaeus receives him joyfully, gladly. They have a conversation somewhere along the way. Zacchaeus becomes a follower. And he has all of this expression of it, all of this uh, uh, reality. Uh, his whole reality begins to change. And so he begins to give uh, feet to that expression. He just begins to work his way out. Okay, this is how this is going to change. And this is what's going to change me. And they're here at the end. Jesus said, man, this kid, this, this one right here, he is a son of Abraham. 
The Son of Man, that's Jesus, came to seek and to save that which is lost. Seeking because they were sought. I don't want to uh, run past this here. Uh, so these came to, this is 21. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Um, I, why, why is that detail included? The vast majority of people think because they had familiarity with the area and um, the, the uh, people from that area. And, and here's probably what they thought. Hey, I think you're probably somebody that I can talk to. Maybe you look like me. Maybe you think like me. Maybe you smell like me. Maybe you eat like me. I don't know what it is, but there's, there's something about you, Philip, that makes me think about, oh, okay, here is, here is somebody that I can relate to. And the whole point of including that detail is there was someone in their lives that would help them get to Jesus. And guess what? You are that someone for somebody who is searching for him. You are the person that may think like them or act like them or talk like them or show up at the same places. And God is readying them to connect with you so that you can point them to Jesus. They are seeking because they were sought. And you may very well be the bridge that they go across in order to meet him. In verse 20, I just note here again, worship, uh, some of those who came up to worship at the feast, they were some Greeks. It's, it is surprising. You should be surprised. You read this along, you're like, this is primarily a Jewish audience. They're in Jerusalem. Da, 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 da. I mean, like, why, why would a Greek, why would a person who's not from there, why would they show up? Why would a person who was a foreigner, if you will, show up? They had to remain in the court of the Gentiles. They had to look from the outside. Some of you know exactly what that feels like. You're like, God is kind of what, like close enough, but uh, man, I'm still very, very far away. I'm not really included yet. Whatever it may be, they're surprised that they were Greeks. Um, I, I, I just note here that these people don't know God yet. And because they don't know God yet, they just wanted to figure some stuff out. Was their life perfect? No. Was their life uh, being changed as Jesus sought them? A hundred percent, Yes. And as they began that, as they, there was something that had sparked in them, and as things began to ignite inside of them, there were things that would surely change, but not yet. One of the great challenges, church family, one of the great challenges that the church broadly presents to people that Jesus is seeking, but they don't have it all figured out yet, is this. We hold them to Christian ideals before they are actually Christians. Well, you know, you really shouldn't act like that. Do me a favor and just look down the aisle. Seriously, like look down the, look down your row at somebody. None of those people live up to the Christian ideals either. And so I don't know that we should be all that shocked when people who don't know Jesus act like they don't know Jesus. But yet, God still may very much be working in their lives. This week, I ran across this on social media. The one good thing that came out of the week on social media, I don't, it's a little small. I'm not sure you can see it. This kid's name or guy's name is Nick Sortor. Uh, I guess that's how you say it. I don't know. He starts off by saying, I think I need God in my life. 
That was, that was his claim. Like, that's, that's, the, that's the lead right there. That's the headline. I think I need God in my life. And then he gives himself some space to breathe. And he says, but I have no idea how the hell to do that. And that is a theologically correct statement. People who live apart from God, they live in what? Hell. He knows that there is something in him that desperately needs something more than him to be a part of his life. And I have no idea how to do it. I don't have a clue. God was at work in him. And then he says, especially as someone that is naturally skeptical of everything. And I know around here with all of our, you know, just clearly thinking, like clear-headed, clear-thinking people, nobody's naturally skeptical of anything around here. I know it just comes easy to everybody. And then he asked the question, any tips? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Church family, there are people all around just like that. God is using them working in them to bring about the kinds of things that he wants to do in them. And if we're we're clear-headed, if we're thoughtful, we can be a part of what God is doing too. We can be Philip in their lives. Um, Again, one more time. Sinners all around us are sinning. Uh, The desires that they have inside of them that get pushed awry, that go crazy, that get spent on things that uh, desires ought not be spent on, the affections and the appetites that they have that go to different places where we know it is just not good, it is self-destructive and all that kind of, like all of those are a result of how God wired them and how God programmed them. They have a sense, I want security. And so what do they do? They seek security in any number of ways. They, I, I would love somebody's affirmation over my life. So they go seeking a group or someone, a voice who would speak over their life. Because the flag that's been flown the whole time has been, you're not enough and you don't measure up. I, I just want a place to belong. And so they go looking for people to whom they can belong. And listen, the world provides options. That's true. But we really do have the best answer here. So what do we do with that? We have to help them reorder and the Holy Spirit has to reorder their loves. They have to take those affections and those appetites and they go, hey, don't spend it on this. Instead, spend it on this. Don't, don't, don't try this. That's a bad path. Instead, try this. We have to help them do that. First uh, John talks about it this way. Don't love the world or the things in the world. For all that's in the world, the lust of the um, flesh and lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father. It's from the world. So our, our issue is, is that we have love that permeates us that is not particularly helpful to us when it's all said and done. We have to have a love that reorders our loves. St. Augustine, anybody? St. Augustine? Okay, three of you. St. Augustine, famous guy, 300s, uh, did exactly this. He spent the vast majority of his young life pursuing every possible way that he could satisfy his desires, his appetites, and his affections. And for those of you who have uh, maybe a son or a daughter like this, his mom kept praying, 
Monica, kept praying, kept praying, kept praying. And Jesus got a hold of him. And he became a bishop in the early church um, and uh, put down uh, in writing some of the most helpful and pastoral and philosophical uh, underpinnings, if you will, as the gospel began to work itself out in the implications of it. He was a genius when it came to that kind of stuff. This is one of the things that he said. It's a mouthful. Just hang in there with me. Uh, But living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things. To love things, that is to say, in the right order. This is what we're talking about, reordering our loves. So that you do not, and then he goes through various options, so that you do not love what is not to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved, or have a greater love for what should be loved less, or have an equal love for things that be, should uh, be loved less or more, or a lesser or greater love for things that be, should be loved equally. That is a mouthful. It's a mouthful. But what he is saying is this. There is a love that can permeate our hearts and can reorder the loves that are in us. Where do we find that love? According to Romans chapter 5, the Holy Spirit pours out that love into our hearts to cleanse some of the loves that are disordered and to reorder the loves that should be. We find that love in Jesus. When we talk about seeking, this is what we're doing. You can maybe take all of this in on Christian doctrine, famous thing, and you maybe could boil it down to a little saying, something a little pithier saying, something like this. Good gifts, they make for bad gods. When my heart, my appetites, my desires, my affections go after a good gift, it becomes a bad God. When I let the love of God permeate me such that uh, things get in order, I can then order my love appropriately for that thing, that gift, whatever it may be. Good gifts make bad gods. It's true in me. It's true in them. And I just note that Philip and Andrew and all the others could have said, Hey, man, look, we're pretty busy right now. Hey, look, you probably don't belong here right now. Hey, look, this is a really important time in the life and ministry of Jesus. Hey, look, I don't like the way that you sin. You don't sin like us, losers. And they didn't. They had compassion. And we should too. Okay, seeking. If, if the seeking happens, the question is, will we see? Because Jesus brings these things into focus very, very clearly. Verse 23, one more time. Uh, Jesus answered him, the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Can I tell you, that is a frustrating verse as a pastor, like a preacher guy. Because like, you're Jesus, how, how did this story end? Did they meet you and be like, oh, here we go. Now we're going to be missionaries. Back then. Like, we don't know how the story ends. Because Jesus takes that moment and just sweeps it up into the larger tale that John has been telling the whole time. Where he's going, hey, this, this is a signal of everything that's going to happen. I've got people who are close and grew up around the things of God who are coming to understand this and I got people far far away and now is the time for the glory of, uh, of God to come upon the son of man in front the son of man to be glorified verse 24 what's that look like truly truly I say to you unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies it remains alone but if it dies it bears fruit whoever loves his life loses it whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life if anyone serves me excuse me if anyone serves me he must follow me And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 
so do you see? I mean, if you see, do you see? Here's a couple of things to ponder here. Uh, just to give you two big bullets underneath and some things to ponder as we work our way through. Uh, when it comes to following Jesus, the starting point is a funeral. Following begins at a funeral. Your own. You have to die to yourself. Did you see it? Whoever loses his life Excuse me, whoever loves his life, loses it. Whoever hates his life in the store will keep it for eternal life. Following begins at a funeral. He puts two compare and contrast things right next to one another. If you love your life or if you hate your life. When he is describing this, what he's, what he's talking about is this kind of fundamental, consistent um, expression of this or um, preference of this is my life kind of built around um, the things that I care about, the things that I desire, the, the appetites that I have, the affections that I have for those things. Is my life built around responding to those things or is it built around responding to something different and letting God reorient, um, reorder, if you will, these loves that I feel? Do I love my life or do I hate my life? Is there something in me? Is there a express a, a fundamental preference in me to yield to myself or do I yield myself to God? Jesus picks this up in multiple places in the gospels. I'm just going to point you to one. It's probably the, the densest um, and uh, the, the most closely in terms of just sheer location in Luke chapter 14. I know this is in the Bible app. I'll read it here. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and he said to them, if anyone, I mean, I love this about Jesus because just think about what a great manager of people he was. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Big crowds, y'all. Let me tell you something. If you don't hate your, well, basically everybody, including yourself, uh, people want to whitewash this. Well, you know, hate. Blah, 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 blah. No, literally the word is hate. That's how you translate that word. You translate it hate. What, what is he saying, though? That's, how, that's what he said, but what is he saying? What he's saying is, listen, there has to be a shift in the fundamental preference of your life. It's exactly the language that he picks up here. And specifically, he targets these three areas. The first one is relationships. There has to be a fundamental shift in the way that you understand these relationships. Why? Because we want security from our relationships. We want affirmation from our relationships. We want a sense of purpose from our relationships. We want a sense of belonging. These kind of fundamental needs, these things that are in us, that God put in us, that we would give expression to uh, uh, any number of other bad gods. We would bow down to any other bad gods. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You bring those to me. You don't have to get that stuff from a relationship. Hey, teenagers, can you lock in for just a second? You don't have to get that stuff from a relationship. You don't. Um, That is a challenge, is yielding those relationships to him. The second one, look at verse 26, 7, 27. Uh, Whoever does not bear his own cross... Whoever does bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We have to yield our ambition to him. Yeah, I don't need everybody else. I'm just going to do this on my own. I'm going to be my own security. I'm going to be my own um, uh, purpose in life. I'm going to create my own sense of belonging. I'm going to seek affirmation from the things that I know that I can accomplish. 
I have to bring my ambition under the authority of Jesus. Is it good to have ambition? Yeah. You have to bring that under his authority. Just like he reorders the loves um, in our relationships so that those relationships become healthy and good and productive for the kingdom so he can take our ambition and do the exact same thing to shape our ambition so that it becomes productive for the kingdom as well. Skip down a few verses of verse 33. We'll just keep this really tight here. Verse 33, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Um, Possessions. Jesus challenges us, and he challenges all, I mean, throughout the Gospels, those three areas, relationships, ambition, and possessions. He says, hey, listen, I know that there is security, or you think that there is security in in, uh, stuff, or in possessions, or in money, or in whatever. I know that you think that there is purpose, belonging. I know that you think that there is affirmation in these things. I'm telling you, boy, it is a shallow, shallow well. It doesn't really help you when it's all said and done. Do you love your life? Or do you hate it? And if I can shift from the fundamental preference toward the things that I see to Jesus, I'm giving my authority. Excuse me, I'm giving my life to you and I'm submitting to your authority. Man, things change. In our relationships, in our ambition, and in the way that we relate to possessions. Relationships, ambition, possessions. It's like he knew that we would live in suburbia one day. He, the second compare and contrast is uh, to lose your life or to keep it. He says in, in um, verse 25 there, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Lose life versus keep it. Do we, are we choosing self-destruction or are we choosing surrender? Because some of us think that this kind of uh, um, uh, self-expression, if you will, is freedom. And it is... Um, I mean, the cultural narrative is just express yourself. Just do what you want. And we think that that's freedom, but it's actually bondage. We think that that's like, yeah, this is who I am. This is who I'm going to be. And honestly, it's self-immolation. I mean, we are setting ourselves on fire. Proverbs says, can a man or a woman carry fire next to their bosom? That's the old word. Next to their clothing and not be burned. Do you lose your life or do you keep your life? Those who, have, who make the shift, those who are committed to follow Jesus, they prefer the life to come over the existence that is. And when they do, what they find is their life begins to be stained with eternity. In other words, um, there is not a moment, not a decision, not a circumstance that we don't think to ourselves, hey, how does this affect my relationship with Jesus? And you think to yourselves, gosh, I've never gotten that far. Actually, you probably have. If you're married in the room or have been married in the room, there was a time or is a time um, now where you, you, you don't make decisions apart from thinking about how it would, uh, if you're in a healthy marriage, you don't think um, uh, about how it would affect uh, you and not also think about how it would affect your spouse. This is what it's like. This is what it means to be stained with eternity. Um, the, the question comes along, and I think it's a worthwhile question. Hey, if I start living like that, though, will I be any good like in this moment? Uh, the old saying goes, don't be so heavenly minded that you are no, you know the rest of this? Earthly good. You heard this before? It's junk, y'all. That is junk. 
C.S. Lewis in his book, New Christianity, and we've got a couple of big quotes this sermon, I'm sorry, but C.S. Lewis said it this way. He was thinking about this, and this is what he said. If you read history, you will find the Christians, the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. You want to make a difference in this world, you have to think clearly about what's coming. Um, they all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you get neither. You want to be good in this earth, think about the life that is to come. Don't settle for the existence that is. Do you love your life or do you hate it? Will you lose your life or will you keep it? Let's wrap up. In verse 27, Jesus models this for us. Look at how it goes. Now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What's he doing there? He's, he's modeling for us exactly what he said. I'm going to hate my life in this moment right here in order to, um, uh, to, to really keep it. That's what he's saying. Then a voice came down from heaven. I've glorified it. We've seen him glorified all throughout the book of John, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it, said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken. Jesus said, he answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. There was a validation that happened there. Church family, listen, you commit your life to following Jesus, and you give your life to the kinds of things that we've been talking about right here, there will be a validation that comes. I don't know if it'll be a voice from heaven that other people think has thundered. But there will be validation. If you see, one of the things you'll see is that following begins at a funeral. If you see, the second thing you'll see is that victory begins at the cross. Look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Victory starts with the judgment upon what is. The judgment that is in the world right now and on the world right now says that the world is sinful. The cross happened because the world is sinful. The cross displays not only the love of God, but the righteousness of God. And God's judgment falls on, on the world because this place is messed up, man, and people sin. It is a broken kind of place, and it is helpless to save itself. It cannot step forward and, and uh, deliver itself. And furthermore, it has a habit of rejecting the very salvation that God offers. So when he says judgment has come upon the world, this is what he's talking about. The, the cross means that the kingdom of God is fully inaugurated and the tyranny of Satan is coming to an end. The cross means that the triumph uh, of God is in the works and Satan, even though he thought he won, has actually um, been defeated. The cross means that the victory of God is here and it is on display and evil doesn't have the last say in the world. The cross means that Jesus was broken to deal with the brokenness that is the world. That's what the cross means. Victory begins at the cross. Judgment has come upon the world. All the systems, all the things, all the ways that it crushes and, and, and uh, destroys people, judgment has come upon the world. And secondly, verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind, by what kind of death he was going to die. Death is the way to life. When we talk about victory begins at the cross, that's what we're talking about. Death um, excuse me, is the way to life. His death, his death 
is the way for us. It is the only way to be made right with God. It is not based on our pedigree. It's not based on our performance. Um, there is no secret uh, backdoor trap thing that you can slide in. There's none of that. There's no glitch in the game. There's none of those things. The only way to be made right with him is through the cross. And the cross draws me. He says, if I'm lifted up, I will draw people to myself. Why is that important to say? Well, because, just close out the, this little passage here. Verse 34, so the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. They're like, hey man, we don't understand this. We're not sure we get it all. That's exactly right. It's why we need a Savior. Uh, how many of you have ever actually, like, I mean, not with your phone, but like taking pictures with an honest-to-goodness camera? Like, a, like old school, like you have to hold it and that kind of thing? You get a lens. It has a little AF thing on it. AF stands for autofocus. That's exactly right. You don't know this. Maybe you do. Um, but those things, especially the nicer lenses, that autofocus has to be calibrated. Otherwise, you can get stuff that is almost focused. Not autofocus, almost focused. And when you get it, you know, in super high res and you're looking at it in 4K or 19K or whatever it is these days, and you're looking at it, you're like, oh, that's not quite as sharp as I thought. Because your lens has to be calibrated. Church family, the reality of our lives is our autofocus is off. And it's not calibrated. And so what has to happen is that Jesus has to come in. We don't see naturally. These are not intuitive things. Our autofocus is not quite right. And so, yes, belonging matters. But we can belong to him. Yes, affirmation matters. He says, I love you so much that I gave my life for you. Yes, purpose matters. Jesus invites us into something. Men, especially men in here, if you want to live for something outside of yourself, something bigger than yourself, something that will last, this is what you want to live for. This is what Jesus has invited us to. There are challenges in your relationships. Yield those things to him. He can shape those. There are challenges in your ambitions. Take that and submit it to his authority. There are challenges in the way that you deal with your resources. Take those. Give them to him. Watch what he does with them. Death is the way to life. This is the message of Jesus. Let's pray together. Then we'll have a moment to respond. Um, Father, in Jesus' name, I ask that you would take what has been said and then push it down into our souls, like the soil of our souls needs you to take this and plant it. Don't just let it lay on the surface. Really push it down inside of us. There are distractions that may come. There are um, worries that may pop up. Certainly there is an enemy who doesn't want to, us to apply this, but... God, we commit these things to you. And I pray, Father, for every single, end of, every single person here, that the way that you have spoken to them individually this morning, they would then take, now take. And they would do, oh, Lord, please, l- let them do with what you've said to them. Let them respond to that exactly the way that you want them to. 
For some, it's going to require courage. For some, it's going to um, mean that we have to say some things out loud. For some, it's going to require um, that, that we take a step back from some things, whatever it may be. I pray that you would do that in us. We really do want to be your people and want to be people who are known for following you. And God, this week, I, I pray that you would bring some Greeks along and we would be Philip. We would be the bridge over which they cross in order to come into a relationship with you. Thank you for this gathering this morning. Thank you for your word. Be honored by our response in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen, amen. Let's